The following is a continuation in our series called Stories in the Shadows, looking at how we see Jesus in the Minor Prophets. We hope you enjoy. All right. I'm going to ask Miss Caroline to pray for us this evening. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for bringing us here to gather tonight and to open your word and hear from you. I pray that you would bless Tree tonight in his talk. I pray that you would make us a friend of the I pray that you would continue to grow our love for you and love for each other. I pray all this in your name. So there's a lot of things that we know, but we can have a hard time doing. Okay, And it starts with gaining knowledge, right? We learn in order to know how to do something. We need to always be learning or else we'll just get stagnant. When we learn things, we can actually put them into practice. And and that actually goes with the way that we read the scriptures, right? We learn how to read the scriptures so that we can grow and understand. But the knowledge portion, this this comes a little bit more naturally for us because it's just easier than the actual doing portion. Well, this is what we call head knowledge. It's good for us to put information into our brains. Actually putting it into practice, that's what's called heart knowledge, where we take what we learn and what we know and we put it into practice and it actually outflows from our hearts and we can actually grow closer to God. We can grow in our understanding of the scriptures because we're applying that. Head knowledge is good for us. It's easier for us. But God wants us to take what we learn from the scriptures and actually take it from our brains, have it go into our hearts, transform us so that we can treat others the way that Jesus wants them to be treated. James chapter 1.22 says we need to be doers of the word and not just hearers only. The Bible is very clear on what the Lord requires of us, what, what the Lord desires of us, but oftentimes we have a hard time taking that from what we know and actually having it go outward from us. So tonight as we get into the book of Micah, we're going to deal with some social issues that Micah deals with. We're going to get into some ways that the people who were supposed to be taking care of others were mistreating and abusing others. So here's what I want us to think about tonight. What God requires of us is to reflect on the love that Jesus displayed in the way that he lived. What God requires of us is to look at Jesus' life and reflect that love. So let's turn to Micah chapter 1. Micah 1.1, 1, 1, the word of the Lord came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Uh, the name Micah is actually a shortened version, as you hear, of Micaiah, which means, who is like Jehovah? Uh, so Micah's name is very important. He came from this little, small, no-name town out in the middle of nowhere. In fact, the only reason that this town has any significance is it's known for being close to a bigger city. That's about it, right? Micah served in the southern kingdom, and he prophesied before the exile, before, before the enemies came in and took over and sent the people into exile. And it's actually split into three distinct parts, and we're actually going to see the progression as we jump through a couple different passages here. Under the first three chapters, Micah was prophesying under a king named Ahaz. And Ahaz was not the greatest of kings. Second Kings 16 says that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his gods. In fact, it was so bad with this guy, he actually burned his own son as an offering. Like literally took his son and killed him as an offering to some pagan god. He sacrificed and made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. So we get from Ahaz, this awful, terrible king, as Mike is beginning his ministry, and we transition into a much better king. In fact, if we look at all the kings of Israel and Judah, David and this other king are probably on par as being the best of the kings. This is a guy named Hezekiah, a guy who came in and he cleaned house and said, we're not doing this anymore. We're getting rid of the idol worship. We're getting rid of the Baal worship. We're going to get rid of all these false worship temples. And he actually reestablished the true worship of God. So Hezekiah, 2 Kings 18, says he did what was right in the Lord. 
He came and he broke down the idols. This is the kind of king we want, right? Uh, So, as he transitioned out, and as he was no longer king, guess what happened? We're kind of doing this when we're looking at the book of Judges. What happened when this king left? What happened? They they went right back to their nonsense, okay? So when we get into chapter 6 and 7, we actually see that transition away from the true worship that Hezekiah tried to bring back. So these people just aren't learning their lesson, right? They're pursuing these other pagan practices. And Micah's call is to hear what the Lord has said. Throughout the book, Micah is going to say, hear, hear, hear. And he wants them to understand what, what God is trying to tell them. So his message is essentially trying to remind them of the authority of God and why we need to listen to what God says as opposed to what these false idols are saying and what the culture is telling them. So Micah speaks to oppression, violence, corruption, bribery, robbery, dishonesty, and pride. So let's jump into verses 2 and 4. Let's see how we see Jesus in this book. Starting in verse 2. Hear you peoples, all of you. Pay attention on earth and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down and tread upon the highest places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will be split open like wax before fire. Like waters poured down a steep, steep place. So Mike is making it very clear that the proper response for them is to recognize God's authority because he's about to do what? It says that he's going to come down from his holy places and he's going to melt everything. Like that's, how, that's how much the impact of God coming and bringing restoration is going to have. It's going to be painful. It's going to hurt. In verse 2, there's, there's movement. God is in his holy place. In verse 3, he comes down from his holy place. In verse 4, God's presence means there's going to be some serious change that he's going to bring. And it's going to be a blessing to those that are following him. And it's going to be painful. It's going to be awful. It's going to hurt, right, for those that are not. This change isn't something that these people are going to look forward to. So his presence is described as mountains melting underneath them and valleys splitting open like wax in front of a fire, like waters pouring down the side of a cliff. This is intended to be terrifying to us. This language is intended to be terrifying because this is the sovereign God who's so angered by his people's sin that he's coming to take care of business. So, why is he coming to take care of business? Let's turn to chapter 3, and let's look at some specific instances where these people were treating others incredibly poorly, looking at those that were in greatest need and not caring for them, treating them awfully. So, starting in chapter 3, verses 1 to 2, it says this, And I said, Hear you, heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin off my people? and their flesh from their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin off of them and break their bones into pieces and chop them up in a meat pot like flesh in a cauldron. And moving down to verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat and declare war against him who puts nothing in their mouths. And then lastly in verses 9 to 12. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who detest justice, who make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become like a heap of ruins in the mountain of the house of a wooded height. So, one of the things that God is doing is he's looking upon these injustices, these priests who are bribing the people, right? The prophets who practice divination for money, those who are making crooked all that is straight. He's looking upon these injustices and he's going to battle 
for his people. Okay? In chapter 3, verse 2, they hated the good and they loved evil. They literally look at all the things that are good and they detest them and they love all the things that are evil. They claim peace, but they declare war in, in verse 5. They detest justice in verse 9. Again, they make crooked all that is straight and they bribe and extort. So they're not caring for the downtrodden. They're not caring for those in need. They're not caring for those that are truly hurting. And God is saying, that's not right. And that's not the way that I have made you into a people to treat others this way. So when we get to chapter 4, let's look at verses 1 to 2. And it says this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of all the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word from the law from Jerusalem. This is about the time where that King Hezekiah was coming into play. Okay? He had rejuvenated the worship. He had brought back the true worship. And what happens? Now there's all these wonderful things happening, right? So there's a correlation. When you treat others poorly, when you bribe them and you extort them, God's blessing is not going to be upon that. But when we're going before the mountain of the Lord and resting and trusting in Him, that's where true blessing is. And that's where Micah wants us to find a true solution to the injustices that he's seeing in the people. So hearing the word that God is the authority and going to the foot of His mountain, that's submitting to God and saying, I'm going to trust in Him as opposed to these idols. Okay? And he continues the rest of the chapter describing the transformation that comes from that. We're not going to read the whole chapter. So as we think about the way that this applies to us, we have to think about the way that Jesus approaches justice. And I want to read just a couple passages that highlight the way that Jesus does this. So turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verses 9 to 14. And it says this. This is a story about a man who has kind of a decrepit, withered hand. It says, He, and this is talking about Jesus, went on from there and entered the synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbaths? So they might accuse him. And he said to them, Which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls in the pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? Of how much more value is this man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the men, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out. And he was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how to destroy him. So in this passage, Jesus is dealing with someone who was kind of thrown off to the side, not cared for. He's sitting outside the temple hoping to get some money, some scraps of food, right? And these religious leaders who are always trying to trap Jesus and saying something that they don't like so that they can accuse him of something, they ask him a question here. They're saying, well, why would you heal on the Sabbath? That's against our laws, okay? And what is the illustration that Jesus uses here to point out the wrong in their argument? He talks about a sheep falling into a pit. If you own a sheep, you make money off that sheep. That's your livelihood, right? You get wool off of it, okay? You can sell that sheep for money if you need it. If that sheep falls into a pit and dies, it's of absolutely no worth to you. So why would you leave the sheep in a pit just because it's the Sabbath? He's saying, no, show kindness to that sheep. Go after it, save it, pick it up out of the pit. It's going to die of starvation or thirst or boredom or whatever it's going to die of, right? You don't leave the sheep in the pit just because it's a specific day of the week. That's just ridiculous. And Jesus is saying, no, go show that mercy. Go show that kindness. And how does he describe the man right after this? He says, is not this man's life worth more than the sheep? If you're going to do that, then you need to take care of this man today, right? So his point is, again, how much more value is this man than a sheep? He puts value on those that are dejected. He puts value on those that are thrown away by society and says that they're not important. That's how Jesus views justice. Okay, let's turn to John chapter 8, verse 2 to 10. Uh, this is an account that's about a woman that was caught in adultery 
and the religious leaders bring her to Jesus. And this is what it says. Early in the morning he came again to the temple, and the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. You know, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him, who has without, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they had heard it, they all went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go from now on and sin no more. So, Again, he's dealing with these religious leaders who, again, are trying to, to catch him in some way of violating their law. And they bring and say, Moses commanded us to stone this woman. She committed this sin. It's this atrocious thing, right? What do you say? And what does Jesus do? He leans down the sand and starts to... We don't really know what he was doing. He was writing something, drawing something. I don't know. Uh, but when he stands up, what does he ask? He says, do any of you have sin in your hearts? Yes. If you don't have sin, then yes, please go ahead and throw a stone. And nobody can answer that question, right? Nobody can say, yes, I am without sin, so I will throw this first stone. Okay? So Jesus defends somebody that is completely shamed by others here. He looks at someone who they're literally trying to cast shame on this woman. They're trying to draw out her sins instead of theirs. And he says, she's important. We can say the same thing earlier. Is this woman, does she not also have value? And you just want to throw her away. All right, last one, then we'll wrap up here. Turn to Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 to 28. This is uh, an account about the faith of a Canaanite woman. It says this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, Is it not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs? She said, Yes, Lord. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Uh, so the disciples are annoyed here. They're looking at this woman and be like, Gosh, she's so loud. She won't leave us alone. She's bothering us. Right? They're wanting her to go away. Okay? And did you catch why? Why do you think they want her to go away? Is it really because she's loud and annoying? What about her are they really, truly frustrated with? She's a Canaanite, right? They don't like her because she's of a different people. She's of a different race, a different country. Okay? This is discrimination here, right? This is, this is blatant discrimination. They want her to just go away because they don't want to have anything to do with her... Now, the disciples were showing blatant discrimination because she was a Canaanite. Jesus acknowledges the difference, right? But he actually leans into it. He asks her a question, right? And what is her answer? Her answer shows great faith. Her answer shows that, yeah, I may be a Gentile. I may not be a Jew, but I'm resting in what you can provide because I know who you are. Like, she's recognizing who Jesus is and saying, yes, that man has healed people. And even though I'm a Canaanite, I'm going to humbly come before him and ask for his help. So despite their differences, Jesus showed her mercy. And Jesus listens to those that are different. He cares for those that are different. And this is just three of many, many different stories that we can read about the way that Jesus views justice. Okay? We just don't have time to go through them all. 
But I hope you see the blatant care and importance that mercy, kindness, and justice have with Jesus. I read a, an illustration about a woman who went before the, the Emperor Napoleon. She was begging forgiveness for her son who had committed a crime. And the story goes like this. A mother sought pardon for her son from the first Napoleon. The Emperor said it was his second offense, and this justice demanded his death. And she said to him, I don't ask for justice. I plead for mercy. But, said the Emperor, he does not deserve mercy. Her answer was, Sire, it would not be mercy if he deserved it. And mercy is all I ask for. Well, Napoleon said, I will have mercy, and her son was saved. See, we don't get mercy because it's something that we deserve. We get mercy because God shows his love for us, despite our sin, despite our inability to come before him and trust in him on our own accord. And he says, even though you're dejected, you're not my people, right? You're all these things. I still love you and I'm still going to care for you. Okay. No matter how the culture treats you, no matter how your friends may treat you, I'm going to show you love. That's how Jesus interacts with us. And that's the way that he wants us to interact with others. So as Mike is speaking to his people, reminding them of who the true authority is, he's saying, hear Israel, hear what's good, hear what's right. They're in response to turn away from the injustices that they've caused towards others and reflect what God has called them to do. In submitting to God's authority, they have to look upon their own sin and call it what it is and say, this isn't right. There's something not right about this. And he calls us to do that as well. We all do this in various ways. We all don't treat people the way that they should be treated in God's eyes. And Jesus is always calling out injustices in his ministry, and we just looked at a couple of those, right? But he's the truest example of how we can live this out. So I want to read probably the most famous passage in the entire book of Micah. Turn to chapter 6, and we'll end with this. Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. It's under the heading, What Does the Lord Require? And Micah writes this, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with a calf a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand rams, ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for my sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? So what's more important than all these offerings that he's talking about? And actually, the offerings are good. Like, I don't want you to read this and say that these aren't important things that they should have been doing. He's saying, what's more important than that? What what does God require? He requires you to do justice. He requires you to love kindness. He requires you to walk humbly before him because we cannot treat others well. We can't treat others with the love and kindness that Jesus wants us to if we're not valuing justice, kindness, and humility. And none of those come naturally to us. None of those are easy for us. Jesus shows us all the mercy when we don't deserve it. And he calls us to reflect that in our lives. That means you may have friends that hurt you, and we're still called to love them. Uh, You may have people in your school that are not kind to you. It means that we humbly come before God and trust in him. Right? Uh, You may come from a family that doesn't value these things, but God is telling us to grow in these things. So, in turn, to what God has done for us, the mercy that he's shown to us, we need to show kindness, we need to show mercy. We need to walk humbly before God. We need to be a people of mercy, kindness, and humility. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more in small groups. Let me pray for us, and then we'll break up. Holy Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that Micah has shown us the way to live, the way that you require us to, and that is to reflect the very qualities that you value so much. So I pray that as we unpack this a little bit, as we read some more scripture that you would teach us, or remind us of how we need to be doing these things as well. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in. We hope this has been helpful for you. 
please keep an eye out for more audio upcoming from WYM.